0: Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our subject of discussion this morning is The Murdered Preacher. The Murdered Preacher. Well, that's not a crime investigation study, but it deals with a very important Bible character and it particularly deals with the sermon that got him killed. And I think uh, you might have guessed already, I'm talking about Stephen. Stephen was the murdered preacher. He preached a sermon, one sermon that we have on record, and he was killed straight after because of that sermon. And so we want to explore that together today. We want to see what we can learn about this murdered preacher. And of course, this story occurs in the book of Acts which is uh, the book of action, where the Lord was working, the Lord Jesus was working with his church in the capacity of the Spirit. That's how he was working. And if the book of Acts were taken out of the New Testament, we would have a very difficult time understanding the rest of the New Testament. The book of Acts is really this connecting link between the Gospels and between the rest of uh, the New Testament, very significant today. And so we want to look at this incident that is recorded in the book of Acts. Interestingly enough, it is the longest sermon that is recorded in the book of Acts. It wasn't preached by Paul, it wasn't preached by Peter, it was preached by this murdered preacher, Stephen. The longest discourse. And it was preached to this uh, group of people who had rejected the Messiah solidly. The Pharisees and the leaders of the Jewish church What lessons can we learn from this sermon that sealed his fate today? That's really what we want to find out. What lessons are there for us? What lessons were there for the people listening? What lessons are there for us today? To the people who had rejected the Messiah, who had clung to their customs and forms and traditions. That's really why they ended up killing this young man. And so this is what we want to explore. Why really was he murdered the way that he was? What really upset them so much? What is it that he said that got them so incensed that they could only you know, deal with it by killing him, silencing him permanently? What impact does that have on us today? So let's go to the book of Acts. We'll spend some time there. Acts chapter 6. We'll learn a little bit about this young man, this preacher, Acts chapter 6. And we'll start there in verse 5. So we're going to be spending most of our time here today, pretty much. Acts chapter 6, and we will read verse 5. And Stephen here in verse 5 is described, it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Of course, this is the situation where the church had some issues about the distribution. And so the apostle said, look, just pick seven people. We'll ordain as deacons. Stephen was one of these seven. But his description here is outstanding. From all the names that are listed, he's the only one that is said to be a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Very interesting description. We had high caliber, high standard this man was. Not only that, but the next verse, verse 8, also tells us, and Stephen, well, it's not the next verse, but verse 8 says, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Here is this man, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, doing great wonders and miracles. He was full of, full of faith and power. He did wonders and miracles. That's what, that's what kind of man he was. This helps us give us a little bit of a background as to his qualification or, or what kind of a Christian Stephen really was. And it helps us appreciate also when we come to his sermon, what happened. Was he like this before? Yes, Yes, well, he would have been chosen because he demonstrated that he was a man that could be trusted in that role. And, and, And he was, this gives us the list of the names that were chosen. It says Stephen, by the way, this Stephen was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then all these other people were chosen as well to be made deacons. In this case, obviously, his description, he was obviously doing a work that was recognized by the church, and so they wanted to follow through with that. Now, the rest of the account there, recorded by Dr. Luke, and it's interesting to keep in mind that Luke, as the author of Acts, he pinpoints certain things, and he's a physician, right, he's a doctor, and, and he writes and he puts certain details that are very interesting for them, very, very colorful in painting the picture. So I want to read through it, from verse 9 onward, and then I want to make just some comments just to paint the picture in case we miss something. Reading from verse 9. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Silesia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it as it had been the face of an angel. And thus concludes this chapter. But before we keep going, we want to just comment on some of these instances that happened here. Very interesting circumstance, but it tells us that Stephen, obviously Stephen's name was not a Hebrew name. Stephen was one of those Greek-speaking Jews who would have very likely been uh, a convert. He was very familiar with the Greek language because we see here that he was disputing in the synagogue that is called the synagogue of the Libertines. What does that mean? The word there simply means the freed men in some Bible translations. And so this was a synagogue formed by very likely Jews that were ex-slaves of Rome. They were freed. And they'd uh, come together in Jerusalem and they'd formed this synagogue of the freedmen. Very likely, because they were slaves, they spoke Greek, not even likely that they would have spoken Hebrew, because Greek was the language of the empire or the world at the time. And so they formed the synagogue of the libertines. And there are four other groups mentioned in this particular account here. These libertines, they were the freedmen. And then it talks about two groups from Africa the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians right? I'm I'm coming to you in verse 9 here, okay? If you want to follow it, verse 9 is where we are. And then the other two groups, they were from from Asia. They were provinces uh, of Rome, in what today we call Turkey, which is Cilicia, and Asia. So Stephen would frequent this synagogue, or these synagogues, or these groups, Greek-speaking groups. They were Jews, but they are Greek-speaking, and he would share, and he would preach Jesus, and there would be opposition, and there would be disputes, and he was really good at it because it says that he could not resist the wisdom with which he spoke as he frequented these churches and shared. Kind of similar to the situations we have today, right? We go to certain churches and we go and we try and share. And sometimes it ends up in a dispute. And sometimes it ends up in all kinds of circumstances. So nothing's really changed all that much. But one point I want to focus on here is this... Uh, province of Silesia or Cilicia, whichever way you pronounce it, usually it's with a K, but Silesia is how we usually refer to it. That province, the capital city of that province was Tarsus. Now, does that bring anything to mind when we mention Tarsus? Paul was from Tarsus. So it is very likely that Paul was in attendance in this group or with this group from Silesia. And he was involved in these disputes with Stephen And he was one of those who was not able to answer with the wisdom that Stephen spoke. Because Paul was also from a Greek-speaking province. He wasn't born in in Jerusalem. He was born in Tarsus. He was Paul of Tarsus. And so here is this learned Paul who is a student in the school of the Jews at the feet of Gamaliel. And in the synagogue where he attends, Stephen comes to preach and they can't answer him. And obviously the situation got so bad that they decided to do something about that. When you can't answer someone from the Bible, then you take drastic measures. You either try and silence them or you try and uh, accuse them or misrepresent their words and twist them and cause some kind of church council to meet and have a church board meeting and let's kick this brother out and so on and so forth. That's what was happening, right? That's the situation that Stephen was facing. Of course, I think we all know it was, uh, well, we we'll come to that. But Saul here that could not answer Stephen and the fact that he could not answer Stephen stuck in his mind. And eventually this Saul became the Apostle Paul that we all love dearly and read what he wrote and quote him. He had an interaction. He had a, a showdown with, with Stephen. And so they bring a charge against him. And the charge is very interesting. If you notice the charge in verse 11, notice what it says. They got some men... And they said, we heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. I find it very interesting, the order in which they said this. He spoke against Moses and against God. In that order, it tells you the perception that the people had of Moses. They had put Moses almost in the place of God. He was so bad, he spoke against Moses and he also against God. That was the charge. That was the accusation. That they, gave, uh, that they brought against Stephen. And they used to, just like happens today, That the way that they accused him is by misconstruing his words and twisting them to bring that charge. And I want to examine that a little bit because it says they brought false witnesses. They brought these people to charge to charge him and, and he spoke blasphemy against Moses, against God. And then we're going to look at the details of the charge. But we see that happening very, very often today where we get you know when you say something a little bit different people will usually charge you with some strange notion based on twisting your words right a little bit or misunderstanding maybe on purpose misunderstanding what you're saying i think we all know people say oh look you guys are saying christ is created right because we emphasize that christ is the begotten son so Okay, well, trying to take what we say, but twist it and turn that into a charge and an accusation. And that sounds so outrageous that people go, oh, no, that's shocking. And so when people would have heard, oh, Stephen, he's speaking blasphemy against, against Moses and God. People go, oh, no, 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 that's really bad. That's really what was happening. Nothing new under the sun. Blasphemy against Moses and against God. And so they brought Stephen before the council. They made it such a kerfuffle, they made such a stir. They gathered all the scribes, all the elders. They brought them before the council. The very same council that had condemned Christ. That's the leaders, the elders, the Pharisees, the scribes. It's the same council. The same council that uh, troubled Peter and the apostles repeatedly and imprisoned them and caused them to be smitten. This is the same council. And they brought this official charge against him. They distilled all this and worked out their whole approach and narrowed it down to this distilled charge. And he tells us uh, of that detail in verses 13 and 14. And notice what it says, that this man speaks blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law. What was the holy place that they were referring to? The temple and against the law. In other words, against who? Moses. So against the temple and Moses. And then he goes on in verse 14, we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, So this is the one that has to do with the temple. This is the more details of the the charge. And change the customs which Moses delivered us. That's the charge against the law. So two charges, okay? It's important to keep in mind because when we understand the charges, Stephen is going to address these charges in his sermon and he's going to answer them. And so it's important for us to understand what the charges are. Something against the temple that Jesus would change something that has to do with the temple and something to do with the law or Moses being changed now remember these were false witnesses that they were hired just like they got in the in the in the trial of christ same story same tactic they got hired the false witnesses they said we heard him say this and that and and that's what how they wanted to condemn christ and this accusation really boils down to that he was accused of trying to change the system the way things have been for hundreds of years this was his charge really right you're, cha- you're trying to change the status quo. You're trying to alter things. Your teachings are threatening the establishment. What you're saying, brother, is contrary to the fundamental beliefs. Sound familiar? That's his charge, right? That was his charge. You're speaking against the temple, you're speaking against the church, and you're trying to change the fundamental beliefs, our law, our creed. Nothing has changed. Nothing absolutely has changed. It's very, I find it very, very interesting. And so the same thing we hear today. Now, I want to keep something in mind and we, can, we, don't, we can't miss that. Stephen probably had said something to his listeners along the lines of these allegations. There is no question about it. But they took his words and they twisted them. They misconstrued them and tried to use them against him. So the charge was not totally fabricated out of thin air. But it was not what he intended to say, exactly. It was not what he meant. It was presented in the most false light. You with me? Because we see that in the next chapter, that whatever he said, he did not mean it the way that they were saying. Because in the next chapter, as it continues, let's look at chapter seven, and verse one. And so here he is in this trial. He's listening to his charges. And now he's given this opportunity. Verse one, it says, Then said the high priest, Are these things so? So here's Stephen standing for the court. He just heard his two charges. He says, Stephen, now for you, time for you to answer. And your answer really needs to be simple. Yes or no? Right? Are these things, as what they're saying true or false? That's what they were looking for, a yes or no answer. Again, this is the situation. Look, here's your charge, brother. Are you saying this? Yes or no? We don't want discussion. We don't want clarification. We don't want explanation. Yes or no? And the yes or no was based on the charge that was you know, trumped up by these false witnesses. But the situation was not as simple as yes or no. And the fact that Stephen did not deny the charge, he did not say no, and he did not say yes. In other words, he says, you know, let me explain what I mean. Tells us that the charge had some elements along the lines of what Stephen was preaching, but it was misconstrued. He could have just said no, but he did not say no because he had said something about the temple. He had said something about the coming of Christ. He had said something about how that will impact Moses and the law. He did. And so he says, okay, let me explain. And so in his sermon, he is explaining the teaching and what he meant. And I find it very, very significant. And we'll go through his sermon, but I want to focus uh, first, before going to all the details of his sermon, there is two places in his sermon where he actually addresses those charges and answers them specifically. I want to look at the first one, the charge about blasphemy against Moses. He answers that in verse 37. So if we go down to verse 37, chapter 7, verse 37. Because he was charged with saying that Moses' teachings would be changed or the law would be changed, correct? That was his charge, that the teachings of Moses would be changed. This is how he answers it. This is, verse 37, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. Now this is a significant verse. We discussed that yesterday. But in other words, Stephen's answer here was simply this, that Moses himself had said that things were going to be changed. There is a prophet coming like me and you should listen to what he says. In other words, this prophet would stand as a mediator between God and man, just like Moses stood as a mediator of the Old Covenant. He would mediate a new covenant, just as Moses was the mediator of an Old Covenant. And he would speak the provisions and terms of this new covenant to everyone, just like Moses himself did that. And Stephen is telling them, Moses prophesied this, not me. Moses that you're trying to defend. Moses, this Moses is the one who said, God will raise a prophet like unto me to him shall ye listen or hear. This was his point. He was addressing the charge of your blaspheming against Moses and saying that things will change, saying Moses said that, not me. That was the first charge. We're going to come back to that in detail, but he's addressing the points that they raised. The next charge was about the temple that this Jesus of Nazareth would come and change his temple and the customs and all the stuff about the temple. And he had spoken against the holy establishment. He addresses the charge of the temple towards the end of his message, beginning in verse 44. Let's have a look at that as well. Verse 44, and we'll read a few verses there where he deals with that. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Joshua. That's what Jesus there means, Joshua, into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house. How be it? The Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. As saith the prophet, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me? saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? His point here is simply that God himself, through the prophet Isaiah, predicted that the temple would not be adequate to worship God. God's saying, listen, God, through Isaiah, you know what temple is going to be fitting to me? Have not I made all these things? I made all the material, all the people that build the temple that is to be my dwelling places. In other words, he's saying the highest place of worship to God is not a structure made by humans. Heaven is the highest place to worship God, not some building. And he's saying there was change. There was the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then they went into the Holy Land, And then they built this temple. So there was change. And so it shouldn't be surprising that there will be another point of change as well when it comes to the temple today. That's his point. And his his emphasis here is, again, the prophet Isaiah is saying this and not me. He's quoting to them scripture. He's quoting to them where the prophet Isaiah. Now, these people that were listening to him were familiar with what happened when Christ died and the veil in the temple being rent. And so that would have rung a very good reminder, a bell in their minds. Here is Stephen quoting Isaiah saying, listen, God himself said that the temple is not really sufficient or enough to worship me. This might have served for a time and for a purpose, but no longer. That was the point that he is making, clearly answering this charge. And so when he did that, They really had no comeback and this was towards the end of his sermon and this is really what brought it all to an end. We're going to go back and look at it in detail but it's just important to see how he addressed those two particular points. Now I want to make a point here while we're on this aspect of the temple. The New Testament teaching is that God's house or God's church is not a building in any way shape or form. God's house and God's church is composed of living stones or people. God's house is his house when his people are in it worshipping, like we are now. When people go home and the building is left empty, this is not God's house. God does not live in, in wooden and brick buildings and structures. This was the Old Testament picture as a type of the New Testament. God's church is a living church the body is the body of Christ he is the head of the body and so this is something we need to keep in mind because all too often we fall towards the tendency of when we say the church we are referring to either an organization or a building correct we think of the church as the people in a secondary sense in the new testament the only church is the people we see the people meeting in homes, in different uh, gatherings, in different houses, or going to the temple. It didn't matter. God's church, where they met, this is where God's church is. That's what Jesus said. If two or, or, two or more uh, gather in his name, this is where he is in the midst of them. So we need to keep that in mind because sometimes we attribute holiness to a building. Too many yeah, to a structure. And if the structure has a certain name on it or a denomination. And, 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 you know, when you say these things today, people get a little bit uneasy because they feel you're, you're threatening the system. This is what was happening with Stephen. And he's telling them, listen, God is bigger than a building and a temple made with hands and bricks and stones and things like that. God, is, God inhabits heaven and earth. And his desire is to inhabit us. This is his point. He's not restricted and limited to the temple because the problem is this. When you come to feel that uh, God's building or God's church is the temple, therefore, to connect more with God, you better be in the temple or in the church or in the building, right? And this is what the Jews had believed. And so Stephen was saying, no, no, no. Isaiah prophesied that God said, what place will will be a fit for me? Didn't I make everything? And it was Christ, of course, who had told the woman at the well. remember, when she asked him the question about worship, And he said, neither there or in Jerusalem will the worshippers worship the Father, but worship to the Father will be not based on location, but based on the heart, in spirit and in truth. So just a point to keep in mind here as far as the church and what the church means. You and me, brothers and sisters, are the house of God. That is what the church of God is in the New Testament. And this is where this is the point where some of these Jews were just stuck. They could not see past the temple and they stayed stuck in that system and rejected to move forward with the truth. So now that Stephen answers these two charges, he actually turns the table and he makes a very serious charge against them. He starts. He's the accused. He's in the, you know, accused stand. So he turns the tables and makes a very serious charge against them. It was so bad that they got up and they killed him. That's how bad it was. That's how strong the conviction in their heart was. Because remember, this sermon, this is, you know, one of my favorite stories, especially when I was little, you know. It's one of my favorite stories, the story of Stephen. This sermon was preached with the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because remember we read earlier that he stood in the council, it says they beheld his face as the face of an angel. This was a very momentous witnessing point where God, the Spirit of God, spoke through Stephen to try and bring the truth to the hearts of these cold-hearted Pharisees. Very, very interesting account. And so we want to examine his message. And in looking at his message, we find that he makes some very interesting points. He contrasts the behavior of the leaders with a number of characters. He focuses on three characters in his message, three individuals, and he uses them as an example, as, an, as a contrast to the leaders. The leaders who, rather than following Moses and Isaiah, they were rejecting what was written and choosing to remain where they want to be. And so in his sermon, he picks three characters. We're gonna examine that and we'll read it together and see the contrast between those three persons that chose to follow God against the leaders who were choosing to disobey God. That was really what he was, what he was doing. And he makes a conclusive case. We know that because the only way to answer him was not to quote a verse, but to kill him. You know, when they, killed the, <laughs> when they killed the accuser, you know, maybe there was something right that he said. Maybe they couldn't have any other answer. Say, okay, Brother Paul, why don't you give him the Bible explanation for that verse? Or, why don't you answer what he's charging us with? No, they killed him, and they killed him in a brutal manner. I think we all know the story. They, they shut their ears and they gnashed on him with their teeth and they took him out and they killed him. You know what that means? They were fighting deep conviction that came to their heart because of that sermon. Very, very interesting. Let's start reading. Yes, yeah, they kind of cut him short, but he had, he had made his point. He had answered the charges and the, the, what angered them was when he started to yeah, turn the tables. But yes, he could have said a lot more. So let's look at that In looking at these three uh, people that he picked. This is the theme of his message. That, and I want to summarize this before I go into the details. The theme really of his sermon is that God was always working through men of faith who did not fear to change things in obedience to God. That's his theme. God worked through men of faith who were not afraid to change the way things were done or to challenge the establishment or the customs in obedience to God's leading. He picks three outstanding figures. First one is Abraham. Let's start reading verse 2. Contrary to his listeners. Verse 2, and he said, Men, chapter 7, verse 2. Men, brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee, then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from, when, and from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that, they shall come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs. And he stops there. This is the first section where he's dealing with Abraham. What's his point here? Abraham, the man of faith, dared to change his life in obedience to God's leading. That's his point, right? He left his family, he left his home, he left his country, he went to a strange land in obedience to God, and God rewarded his faith, and God blessed him, and God made a covenant with him, because he dared to obey God and change things. That's his point that he's making to these people. His unspoken point was that Abraham obeyed God when it was time to change, unlike you. Right? You're staying stuck. You don't want to follow in God's leading because it requires you to make some change. Abraham did that, and you claim to be the children of Abraham. Now remember, we have to keep in mind, he's repeating a history. All these people are, are... Very familiar with what he's saying. They know it back to front. Why is he preaching to the choir, so it seems? So we need to understand, what is the point he's trying to make? He's not just rehearsing history, and they say, no, we know all this. He's making points. And this was his first point. You're children of Abraham? Well, Abraham was a man of faith, and he dared to change when God wanted that. You're not doing that. And that went home. And so there was a building conviction. Let's go to the next one. Next person he he focuses on is Joseph. Verse 9. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And he delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died he and our fathers and were carried over into Shechem and laid in the sepulchre that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem or Shechem. Again, next part of the story. His focus here was mainly on Joseph and what happened to Joseph. And he was making the same point. Joseph was faithful to God through severe trial under very different circumstances. There was a major change in Joseph's circumstances. And he was faithful to God in that, and God honored him and God blessed him. As a matter of fact, the Israelite nation, at the time they weren't a nation, but Jacob, the Israel, who is Israel, and his children, they moved to Egypt because of the faithfulness of? Joseph. So he's building a case because he's going to come to Moses. Moses is the third one, and he spends a lot of time on Moses, as we shall see. You know, you know, the right, came to get it. corn, they went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, don't, don't come to me. Go to Joseph. That's right. Don't come to me, Yes, that's a good point. Thank you. That's right. They came to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh directed them to Joseph because he was in charge of all the support and the, uh, provisions there. Unlike his listeners who find it very difficult to make some change in their life because of tradition tradition, rather than following God. He's saying Israel left the promised land and went into Egypt. He made a radical change where Joseph was in obedience to God. And you are the children of Israel. And when God now says it's time to change some things, you don't want to do that. That's his unspoken point again. Then, of course, he comes to Moses. And Moses, since the charge was blasphemy against Moses before God, he spends a fair amount of his sermon on Moses. And he actually divides the life of Moses into three very distinct stages when he addresses and deals with Moses. First stage starts in verse 17, as we keep going, talking about Moses. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Till another king arose, which knew not Joseph, The same dealt subtly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end. They might not live in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, why, no, so ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying and was stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Why repeat all these details that they all knew? Why? Why bore the congregation and the council? Why take a precious time from his trial to repeat standard history? Because the answer to his charge is in that history. You see, Moses, he's reminding them of something about Moses. They are charging him of blaspheming Moses, right? The great leader, the infallible authority, the prophet of God. And he's basically telling them, "Don't you remember Moses? Moses was a failure. For the first 80 years of his life. Don't you remember how he tried to deliver Israel. And turned from a savior to a murderer and a fugitive. This Moses that you're telling me about. He fell flat on his face. When he did not act in accordance with God. Or out of faith and obedience to God. When he acted on his own. He was an absolute failure. That's his point here right. Moses ran from Egypt as an escaping murderer, you know, a criminal, run for his life. He says, this is Moses. He fell flat on his face when he acted on his own. He was reminding them of the Moses that they trusted that he is being accused of blaspheming. And he's making a very, very interesting point. Now he goes to the second stage. That's the first part of Moses' life. He goes to the second stage, verse 30. And when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in the flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and of the, God, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord unto him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt. And I've heard their groaning and I'm come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. What's his point here? This is Moses now following God, following God's instruction. He's going to the very people that had refused him, but this time they were going to accept him. What made the difference? Rather than doing it in his own way, he was doing it in In God's way. A change happened, not the way he thought, the way that God wanted. Very different to what Moses anticipated or what Moses expected was God's will. You see, Moses thought he was doing God's will. He delivered the Israelites from one Egyptian. That's as far as he got, and that's it case closed he couldn't get further than one he killed one and that's it God wanted Moses to deliver the Israelites from Egypt altogether so he's saying even this Moses he had a way to do things God had to re-educate him and then he sent him back on the changed plan God's plan this time and this time it worked you with me they're listening to him and boy their conviction is rising oh boy You know, you can just imagine the Holy Spirit is using the words of Stephen to drive sharp arrows into their hearts. And the story is very relevant for us today because we saw the same thing happens again today as well. And so obedience to God and God's leading makes all the difference. It caused a change for Moses in his manner, in his operation, in his character. And he was not afraid to follow God's plan, even though it was a little different. Same lesson for us. What we might think is the way to do things is not necessarily always what God thinks. Let us not be afraid to follow God, even if it requires some change in what we might think or what we might expect. The problem with the Jews is they had put God and Moses in a box and they said basically nothing changes forever. And if anyone wants to change anything, woe unto you. That was the charge of seeing you say, look, you got to change everything. That's blasphemy. Any change to them was blasphemy. Let's not be like that. Now he goes to the final stage of Moses' life, and now he really drives the point home, really drives the point. You can imagine the listeners listening to him. They would have understood what he's trying to say because, you know, to be honest, you know, in reading this account, we generally think, well, he just repeated the history of Israel to people who already knew it. Well, he took up precious time of his counsel. I probably wouldn't have done that if I was him. But when you read between the lines or you understand the points that he's trying to make, he's emphasizing certain points in their history that answer directly to the charges that were laid against him. Verse 36, let's keep going and see what else happens here. Speaking again of Moses, he brought them out, Exodus now, after they had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods, to go before us. For as for this Moses, which w- brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Ramphan figures which he made to worship them and i will carry you away beyond babylon wow what was he trying to say here don't miss the point very significant point what's the point of stephen the people that moses delivered refused to obey moses correct they they turned from him in their hearts they thrust him out they turned to egypt what they were used to what they had accustomed themselves to. And they were not happy to go with the program that Moses had introduced. And for 40 years, they worshipped idols. not just that one time, for 40 years. In their hearts, they were totally closed off to God and what God wanted to do with them through Moses. So much so that God actually had to solve this problem of idolatry by taking them out and bringing judgment upon them to take them all the way to Babylon. The root of why Israel went to Babylon started in the wilderness. That's what Stephen is saying. Saying our own fathers did not even obey and follow Moses, they went into idolatry. And you, who profess to be the followers of Moses, are doing the same thing. Because Moses is the one who said, There is going to be a prophet coming like me who will introduce this covenant. That will bring some changes, but you're not willing to change just like our idolatrous fathers. That's the point he's making to them. Wow, man, I would have loved to have been sitting in that council to watch, to watch their faces. What would it have been like for them listening to that? Moses himself, you are not following. That's his charge to them. He's saying, I'm blaspheming Moses, you're accusing me of blaspheming Moses? you're the ones who are not following Moses. And he's doing that straight from the Bible and from the history that they are familiar with. That's why it was unanswerable. See, he wasn't wasting his time. He wasn't just rehearsing history to fill the time. This was a message inspired by the Holy Spirit. A powerful, powerful message. You are no better than your fathers, in other words. You're following the exact same course. And so he brings this charge against them. Obviously... He could tell by their faces that things were not going very well for him. I am sure he had that discernment. And so notice why he, he turns up the heat now. His time is running short. He realizes he's, he's, the conviction is building, and he can see death written in their faces for him. Notice what he says, verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do ye. Wow. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. The accuser turned to the the accusing party now, and he accuses them of the very same thing, basically, that they did, that they accused him of. Saying you're just like your fathers? You received the law of Moses, and you're not even keeping it. They killed the prophets, and so did you. And the prophet that Moses spoke about, that I'm preaching, that you're saying I'm blaspheming because I'm preaching Jesus, Moses spoke about him, you killed him. And they knew that, they remembered that, because sitting in that very council were very likely the people who had pled guilty, or that Christ should die in Christ's trial, not many years before. About three or so years, three and a half years before them. They would have remembered very clearly the same conviction had come to their hearts. Stiff necked and uncircumcised. Stiff necked. What's a stiff neck? Well, your neck will not bend, right? You will not bow down your head or be humble. Stiff neck. You hold your neck up, your head up all the time. That's what he was telling them. Pride. Pride, Pride of opinion. No humility. You stiff necked, proud people. And no repentance, exactly. Uncircumcised in heart. Their heart was evil, was full of evil. It was not circumcised. They might have been circumcised in the flesh, but their heart was far from God. And he was going to the heart of the problem. That's why they weren't happy. They were not happy at all. You know, some people today might say, well, you know, brother, when we share the truth with others, we need to be loving and kind. That's true. It's very good. But there is a time to also speak up like Stephen. Stephen. And you know, today, if someone would speak up like Stephen, most people would condemn him. Say, so look, this brother is too harsh. No, no, he shouldn't have said that. Look, that was a bit rude to say that to the leaders. You know, do you know, Gamaliel and all these people were there. That's, that's a bit too much. He told them, you uncircumcised and heart, you stiff-necked people. This was the Holy Spirit speaking, not Stephen. There comes a time, brothers and sisters, when the Lord will rebuke and reproof in a very marked way to bring conviction to the hearts of people. Their reaction, their response shows us that the, the target hit home. They just reacted in the most, in the opposite way that God intended. And we'll see that in a minute, you know, because you can only do one thing with the truth you either accept it or you fight against it. And the stronger the conviction, the stronger the fighting and the resistance. And that's exactly what happened. And so he turned the tables. And now he's referring to Jesus, saying, You killed Jesus. Am I then the one blaspheming Moses or you guys? That's his point. And of course, their reaction, verse 54. And when they heard, when, sorry, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Here's the best answer that they could give. They were cut to the heart. This is conviction. And this is a resistance of the conviction. They gnashed on him with their teeth. What does that mean? They were so angry they. Oh, that's, that's what it says, right? Yeah, bad news when the judge gnashes his teeth today. Correct. That's exactly right. That's bad news. And that's the nature of truth, brothers and sisters. You either accept it or you fight against it. They gnashed with their teeth. Angry and livid, full of hatred. That's what had happened. The That's exactly right. The whole issue, that's, that's what truth does. That's exactly right. The truth cuts to hearts like a living sword. That's what it does. It polarizes people. And remember, Jesus said he came to bring what? A sword. That's one of the verses a lot of people misunderstand. Why does Christ bring a sword? He bring, the sword of truth will either bring you to this to its side and be peace to you, or it will be something to fight against. And to them, the truth was a sword, a cutting sword, and they rose up to fight against it. It polarizes people. And you can tell who's with Christ and who's not. And a good example here is in this trial. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad, right? Here's the difference. Those that gather, those that build up, those that follow in God's leading and unite together, and those that scatter, those that divide, those that go off on tangents and, and are divisive, this is the difference. Now, Stephen was accused to be a divider, obviously, because he was a trouble of Israel. But the question is, where was God leading? You see, Stephen and the church were moving in God's leading. God's leading at that point required change of certain things. The Jewish nation as a whole were not willing to change anything. And this is what caused the problem. And the same thing exists today. Exactly the same thing Exist today. Those who, like the rulers, stubbornly refuse to make any change to stay with how the things were always are in grave danger. Just like their authority, they were holding to Moses as their authority. Moses is the one who prophesied of these things. You see, the Jews could not see beyond the forms and the customs, they could not see beyond the temple. They could not see beyond the traditions. They could not see beyond the ordinances. And that includes the feasts, by the way. Since we're talking about the feasts. They could not see beyond any of that. They stayed stuck in that form. And any questioning to that was seen as blasphemy. And the same thing exists today. And they did not want to hear any more of it. Let's keep going. We're almost there. So we'll just uh, quickly wrap it up here. Our time is running. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Just like at the trial of Christ, when Jesus said, You shall not see me henceforth until you shall see me coming with power on the right hand, or on the right hand of power, he said that to Caiaphas. That's essentially the same thing. It would have reminded them of exactly what Jesus says. Now, two, yes, and two. Thank you. <laughs> that's exactly right. The issue now, here Stephen, his, his vision is open. He sees this, this picture of heaven. He sees Christ. The issue is no longer about Stephen. It's back to that hated Jesus in the minds of the leaders. Here is Jesus again. That's what, it, that's what this trial really was all about was about Jesus. What do you do with Jesus? They were condemned with their own scriptures, with their own Bible. They could not answer Stephen when he used the scriptures that they trusted in and that they quoted against them. Totally destroyed their position. And they would yet not accept Jesus. And so they chose to kill Jesus again in the person of his servant, Stephen. And this is exactly what they wanted. They preferred to cling to their dead forms and useless traditions rather than move on in the advancing light of God. They preferred to stick in the shadows rather than to accept the reality and the substance that had come. That's really what speaking against against the temple was in their minds. Because in speaking the way he did, Stephen as Christians and all that, the temple and the services, the Levitical priesthood and all the forms and ordinances associated with that, they were no longer now Relevant, now that the reality had come. And the Pharisees were very upset about that. They wanted to keep the temple and everything associated with the temple and the priesthood, because after all, some of them were the priests and that's how you rule the people and a lot of perks to the job. We don't want anyone to tell us that's finished and everything that goes with it. They chose to stick with the shadows rather than move into the advancing light. And so they killed Christ again. And verse 57 It says then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul and they stoned Stephen calling upon God and saying Lord Jesus receive my spirit and he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice Lord lay not this sin to their charge and when he had said this he fell asleep and chapter 8 verse 1 is part of the story and Saul was consenting unto his death that actually belongs to chapter seven. But anyway, here is the final end, the murder of this preacher. They took him out and they stoned him. And he said the very same thing. I find it amazing. He said the same thing Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them. He said, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. And it says they, they uh, laid their clothes at the feet of Saul and Saul was consenting unto his death. Twice here, Saul is mentioned. You see, Saul was present in this council he would have been among those who voted for the death of Stephen. That's what it means when it says Saul was consenting unto his death. He, he, may, he voted, yes, he's worthy of death. He should die. And uh, the death of Stephen actually left a permanent mark on the conscience of Paul, Saul at this stage. A permanent mark that stayed with him to, to his death. This was the first seed of conviction that the Lord eventually used to convert Saul to Paul. you realize that? Witnessing the death of Stephen was the beginning of the conversion of Saul. And he fought against that for a while. And he persecuted the church. But then when Jesus came and spoke to him on the road to Emmaus and told him, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks or against the goads. What was he referring to? You see, the memory of the death of Stephen, the way he did, and seeing his face as an angel, this was pricking the conscience of Paul. It was nagging him. It would not let him go. And Jesus was telling him, Paul, it's hard for you to fight against that. You know, Paul, that that was the truth. And Paul was, became the great apostle Paul that we refer to. And so the death of Stephen, though he was felt as a great loss to the church at the time, it produced the great apostle Paul that we read about, that we, you know, have all the writings of Paul inspired apostle who did so much for the advancement of the gospel and this is what pushed pushed and pushes the gospel forward persecution and even death many times serves as a means of growth for the uh, for the church the significance of this event when stephen died we understand of course that to have occurred what year does anyone remember 34, 34 AD which was precisely 7 years from the beginning of the ministry of Christ. Remember that last week of the prophecy of Daniel 9, where it says, Christ in the midst of the week, he will confirm the covenant with many, he will be cut off. So the first three and a half years, Christ's ministry, he dies. And then for three and a half years, the apostles and the disciples, they gave witness up until this point now where the church the, or the, the Jews, the Jewish church officially rejects Christ fresh and crucifies him afresh in the person of Stephen. And that was the point where the gospel then went further out to the Gentiles, to the world. So the death of Stephen is a very, very significant marker in prophecy. Now the Jews had officially stated, we are not interested in changing anything, in moving forward. We're staying where we are. And God, unfortunately, had to say, okay, my program is still going to move with those who are willing to move with it. And so he bypassed the Jewish nation. And he moved forward. And probation, of course, for the Jews, we understand that, to have finished then. And God has his his faithful people in every city and every nation. Now, it's very dangerous for us today, I believe, seeing the example that we have of the Jews to try and return back to some of the forms and traditions and shadows that they clung to and that they used to murder Christ. This is where it becomes very dangerous for us today. God has moved forward. The program has advanced. Have we advanced with it or are we retrogating? Are we going backwards? And so this amazing account comes to a close here and it's full of instruction for us today, I believe. Very much full of instruction. The last sermon of Stephen. The Jews who were slow to discern the end of the system of shadows and types were bypassed by God. They could not believe that the instructions of worship that God had given would ever change. That's why they said, no, no, the temple, the way we've done things always, that was what, that was what God said. And God doesn't change. Therefore, to suggest any change, you are a blasphemer. That's the same the reasoning a lot of people say, use today. Say, so, well, God gave that instruction. We need to go back to what God gave. But you have to keep in mind that God also moves forward. And things do change. Not that God changes, but His... Instructions for us today are relevant to our need and relevant to the fact that Christ has come. That has made a big change, a huge change, the coming of Christ. And so they were passed by. And so, my challenge in closing is this to you this is my appeal. When truth calls for us to change, to alter things, do not hesitate to follow the truth. That's what we expect from people when we share with them, for example, the Sabbath. And, and they cling to Sunday. And we expect that when the truth comes, that some change needs to be made. Well, that's not the only change. Whatever that God leads us to, if it, requ- it requires change, let us not hesitate to follow in God's leading. The danger is to stay stuck in where we believe we've always been. That's where the safety is. And not to venture forward. There is danger of being passed by. That's what happened to the Jewish nation. What will happen today? Will we be like Stephen? Or will we be like his murderers? It's easy to say, no, I'll be like Stephen. Of course, everyone will say that. Sometimes it's challenging to actually apply that in our lives. Let us follow on with the leading of the Lord. Let's close. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.